if you know my stories of my Honda over the years, up until I got the car that I have now, it had all seven lights on the dash for most of the time that I owned it. Uh, things bounced and rattled, and every now and then you get a gauge that just does this. And, and sometimes this is how our faith is. And what, what Jesus wants is a faith that just continues to grow to grow and to grow. And there's times where like you you feel like you've gotten to a certain place and then something happens in your life that that starts to suck down that meter the other way. But as you progress and you get strong, it starts to lift back up and and it's really the battle of faith that I believe every Christian goes through. When we started this chapter two weeks ago, looking at the story of the raising of of Lazarus. I really wanted that story to just minister to our hearts and where we we might be in life at at some times. But today I want us to really go back to the original purpose of why this gospel was written, because that's what it's all about. I have to ask myself as I continually read through this, because there's, there's great stories in here, great testimonies of the Lord's work, Why did the Apostle John write the good news story of Jesus to begin with? Because it will coincide with why Jesus did things the way he did them. Sometimes if you're honest, you wonder why Jesus does things certain ways. Why did it happen that way, right? We question. It doesn't doesn't always make sense why Jesus. But if you could step back, like we have the opportunity of going through the Gospel of John, you can sometimes see the big picture. There's more that goes on in life than just our life. There's more that goes on in the eternal picture than just our little uh, mortal picture of life. One of mankind's greatest battles is with unbelief. Not only do people struggle with believing in a God, right? People struggle in believing in Jesus, And then even when you do move them to believing in God, to then believing in Jesus, they struggle with completely believing in Jesus. Like, do you really believe? And I think the words of the man whose son was, uh, had a demon cast out of him in Mark chapter 10 are fitting for the majority of Christians. When Jesus says, do you believe? It's not that he didn't believe, but his response is, Yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Sometimes that's looked at in a critical way, but I think that it should be looked at realistic. Like this is the place that most people are. In some areas of our life, we have this unbelief, and that's where Jesus wants to move that meter of faith so that we're not struggling with with begging God to help my unbelief in this area. And so when you go back to the beginning of this, you you wonder, like after decades of ministry throughout the known world by the early church, understanding that the majority of the New Testament had already been written, all of Paul's letters, all of Peter's letters to the churches were already being passed around. Three of the Gospels had already been written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
Why in the world at the end of his life would John, sitting back, having gone through what he went through and seeing what took place in Jesus' ministry, life, death, and resurrection, and then the progression of the church over the years, sit back and know that all of these things have already been written about the accounts of Jesus and the inspiration of the church and the movement of the Holy Spirit and how things were being built up and think, you know what? I need to write my story. Why would he do that? Why would he add another gospel and then potentially three more letters on top of that? He tells us in John chapter 20, and and this you've heard many a times as we went throughout this book, that Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in the book, but these were written. These specific miracles were written. He says there's been many of them. He could have wrote about a thousand miracles probably. But these specific miracles were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, a lot of people know this, and again, as I said in the early stages of this series, is that that's why you direct new believers to read through the Gospel of John. Like, this is a story for uh, evangelism, and this is a story that you would, would help you understand who Jesus is. And that's all true. But as we'll see today, this wasn't just written for brand new believers, for people who were seeking Jesus. Most of us are in this place of, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that's why these seven miracles were written. John focuses specifically on seven miracles for the purpose of defeating unbelief in people's lives. I I didn't come up with this acronym myself. I found it somewhere, and I thought it was interesting. But there's an acronym for the seven miracles in the book of John called The Sign. T is turning water into wine, healing the nobleman's son, elevating the lame man, Supper for 5,000, the interim on the sea, which is the walking on water, giving sight to the blind, and the notification of Lazarus to come forth. That's the sign that John made for all of those who may battle unbelief in their life. What he has done, as he said, it's like this. If you're looking for the Messiah, if you are truly looking for the Savior of the world, here's your sign. Not just one little sign, but a culmination of signs that ends in this final sign that John will show us in the story of Lazarus. Now, last time as we progressed through the first half of chapter 11, we learned that the reason Jesus didn't go heal Lazarus when he was sick was because he loved Lazarus. He loved his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, if you weren't here Go back on YouTube or something and watch that. Because what it says is, he loved them so, so he stayed where he was. Having that so faith to understand that sometimes we don't always understand. But that doesn't ruin our belief. He stayed where he was, and he let Lazarus die because he loved them. 
And the reason why letting Lazarus die would be considered loving, if you can see from the bigger picture, is because of the Son of God would be glorified through it. In other words, it would be more loving to put Lazarus through death and his sisters through grief if it would reveal in an even greater way more of who Jesus is. Ultimately, firming up their foundation and strengthening their belief. Today, we're going to see that same push going a step further where I think that Jesus just wants to say to everybody, I love you. Trust me. Trust me. I love you. Verses 17, and we're going to go down to 44 today. John chapter 11, verse 17 says, so when Jesus came, if you remember, remember we ended and he wasn't going to show up. He told his disciples we're not going. And then after a few days, he said, now we're, after a couple days, he said, we're going. And so they're all wondering, like, why in the world are we going? You know that they almost killed you last time we got, we were in Jerusalem in the area of Judea where all of those Jews were. And, and Jesus says he's sleeping and they are like, he's, then that's good. He's getting rest. And he's like, no, he's dead. And Thomas, in all of his faith, says, then you know, let's all go and die too, right? And so we get to verse 17, and it says, when Jesus came, he found that he, meaning Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Everybody say four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. John's great at details, there's three things that I want to just point out real quick. The first one is four days. Why is four days even relevant? Why does he say that it's been four days? Well, if you look at the belief of the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders, some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and the ones that were specifically fighting against Jesus more than anybody else, they believed in the resurrection. But they also believed that if somebody died, that their soul, and they taught this to people, would hover for three days over the body in case... In case there would be some sort of healing or resuscitation or, or resurrection, because they believed in the resurrection. And so, after three days, what would take place is in the natural, the body went through uh, death. And then, you know, they'd pack up the body with spices to kind of hide the smell and, and help the deterioration. And in Israel, where the heat is and how the humidity is, it helps bodies deteriorate even faster. There would be two burials. Not that most of you care about any of this, but they would wrap them up like a mummy in all of these spices. And then you'd go through rigor mortis and be stiff. And then eventually the body starts to get soft because after three days, it would start to deteriorate and decompose. And gases would come out, and, and liquids would begin to leave the body. And by the time that it began to decompose, it was believed that it was then too late for resurrection to take place. And so after three days, there was no chance. This was taught by the religious leaders, the religious leaders that had been battling who Jesus says he was. And this is something that most Jews had been taught. And so there's no hope after four days. 
The second thing that he points out is that they're in the town of Bethany. They didn't go all the way into Jerusalem. In fact, what we'll find out is they didn't really even go into the city of Bethany because that's where Jesus was almost stoned to death. But he was close enough that there would be Jews that had been stirred up to come against Jesus that more than likely were there. And that's what he says. There were Jews that had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, who were those Jews? It may have been, some believe, that that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had money, that they were well-known, and that there was a lot of friends there, there was a lot of family there that was around them, that was supporting them in their time of mourning. But most of you have probably heard over the years that it was true also that Jews would sometimes hire professional mourners. So there would be other Jews that would join their family and support them in their grief. And part of a professional mourner's job was to to weep and to cry and to mourn with them and support them in their time of loss. And so there was professional mourners more than likely who were there, and some of those Jews probably also were Jews who knew of Jesus because at this time, most people in that land area had known of Jesus. Some of them may have liked him. Some of them may not have liked him. Verse 20, it says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Just real quick, some people picture this all taking place at the house. Jesus wasn't even to the house yet. In fact, he wasn't even inside of the town yet. Martha meets him while he's still outside of the city. Verse 21, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if... You had been here. My brother would not have died. Now, what's hard to do is preach through this story, not project what you already believe, which is what I find in studying that most commentaries and pastors already do, because we don't know tone in the text, right? And so there's a lot of times we can say something several ways, and what we say means something different, right? And so we're not quite sure how these things were said. And so there's some people that they read this and they see Martha's words and they think that it's a statement of complaint. Like, Jesus, if you had been here. And and she's speaking these words out of her disappointment that she sent a messenger to Jesus and Jesus delayed. But other people read this as more of just a statement of fact. It's really a statement of belief, like, Jesus, I know that if you would have been here, my brother would be alive, because she too knows that past three days that there would be no hope. Nevertheless, it was proof of of the evidence that she believed in Jesus Christ. And that points to the next statement that she says, but, in verse 22, even now. Everybody say, even now. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Even now is the challenge of faith. Even now is the challenge of her faith. It's the challenge of our faith. Even now is the challenge of whether you believe or you even fully believe. Now, I can't say, reading through this, if Martha said this because she had a moment of inspiration once upon, once she came upon the presence of Jesus, 
You guys have been there before? Like you get into that place and you can literally feel the presence of Jesus around you and with you and you're inspired in your faith and all of a sudden you feel like you're full of faith. I can't say that it was because she was in the presence of Jesus and her faith was inspired or maybe just the opposite. It came from a place of desperate faith because it was based upon seemingly impossible circumstances and so she would be like Hannah crying out to God, please, I beg you that you would take care of this situation. I don't know if she even fully believed what she just said based upon some of the words that she says after this. But what I want us to notice is that she goes from an if statement to a now statement. Even She goes, if Jesus, if Jesus, to even now Jesus. Like, there's a gap in belief right there. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there many a times where I've thought, man, if Jesus would have just did it this way. If, if Jesus would have just taken care of this over here. If Jesus would have healed my daughter. If Jesus would have helped me in my job in that, that time frame. If, if Jesus would have done this. And when you're saying the if Jesus, it's not that you don't believe in Jesus. It's just you think that him not helping you in those situations. It, what it does is it brings you to, how do I word this? It makes you look backwards. Like if Jesus had done that, then things would be different the way I wanted them to be right now. It makes me look at the past, even though the past is already over with, instead of looking at the now and what can take place right here, right now. It makes me think about yesterday instead of focusing on what's important in the present. And she says, if Jesus, and then she right away transitions to this bold statement of faith, even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Like, you notice she bounces from like midway to full of, full of faith back to half tank of faith, to full of faith, half a tank of faith. You ever been there? You got the bounce going on. You have the question, then you have the answer, and then you're back to the question, and then you don't know if that's the answer, but that's the answer that sounds good. Then you go back to the question, and you're not quite sure. And really what it comes back to is you're like, Lord, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Whether or not she fully believed that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus, even now, four days later, you have to respect what she is saying. She is saying that she still believes in Jesus. I still believe despite you not arriving on time. I still believe despite that it didn't happen in the time frame that I thought it should happen. 
I still believe despite the sorrow of, of losing my brother, despite the lack of understanding of why I would see you perform miracles over here and for all these other people, and I hear of the stories, and I've seen some of them, but I didn't see it in my own life, I still believe in you. It's not the full understanding, but I got to tell you, it's the honest and open understanding. She's being real in that moment. And yet she's left herself open to what could take place even now. Verse 23, Jesus says to her, like, listen, man, your brother's going to rise again. And she says in verse 24, verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Isn't that what most of us believe? That's not a crazy statement of belief. The majority of Christians today believe that the dead in Christ will rise again in the last days. It's proof that she may not have fully understood what she just said prior to that, but she did understand what she believed. She believed that there would be a future day with the Lord. She did believe in the last day's resurrection. These were beliefs that were actually taught by the Pharisees, something that she might have learned in church, something her parents might have talked about as she was being raised up in the faith. It was knowledge that she had gained from the study of God's word, whether directly or indirectly. And Jesus doesn't even knock her faith. He doesn't make, make fun of or get down on her for her lack of understanding because it's okay to have faith for the future. It's accurate theology. But instead, he looks at what she said and he says, let me expand this. Let me expand this understanding. Let me expand your faith. Let me move that meter of faith in your life just a little bit. Because what he's about to show her, this isn't just a good word out of God's word, but I am the word. Never forget that God is right there in the here and the now. In verse 25, it says that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. She's like, no, I know he's going to rise again on the resurrection of the last day. He's like, no, listen, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. What is Jesus doing through this process? Not only is he revealing who he is, but He's taking her focus off of the circumstances. He's taking her focus off of the hurt. He's taking her focus off of the disappointment. He's taking the focus off of her grief over death, even off of what she thought she knew. And he refocuses it on himself. There's a difference. All too often, we're putting our faith in what we think Jesus can do, should do, would do, could do. And Jesus wants our faith on him. This is not just what I can do. This is who I am. And Jesus challenges her faith. And she responds. Yes, I get it. You are the Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the one that was coming to the world. 
you are who we've been waiting for. He wants her eyes on him. Jesus wants to refocus your belief from words on a paper to a person. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling to you. And as soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and she came to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet even come into the town. He was still outside, but he was in the place where Martha had met him and the Jews who were with her in the house comforting her. When they saw that Mary was rising up quickly and went out, they followed her. Like, here comes the profession of mourners. She's going to the tomb, and she's going to weep there. Now, this is what we get paid for. So let's rise up. Let's go after Mary, and we're going to follow her to the tomb. And we're going to mourn with her. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, it says, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, we don't know tone in what she's saying. But I want us to understand a point that I brought out last time. These are two different women with two different personalities, with two different responses. They, have may, they may have said the same words, but their words those were words that were probably spoken many times over the last four days. I bet you all of them looked at each other. There was probably some of the other mourners that were around them like, yeah, if Jesus was here, but he's not. Right? This is probably something that was fed into them. Mary is simply repeating something that has been spoken several times over the last few days. Nevertheless, her actions showed something different than her statement. One of the first times you'll read about Mary and Martha is in Luke chapter 10. And you get a clue about their personalities and who they are just a little bit in this story. Jesus arrives at the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha to take a break. At this point in time, Lazarus is alive. He's healthy. They're buddies. They're friends. They're talking. He's with Jesus and the disciples. Jesus is sitting in the living room teaching, and Martha's there, and she thinks that they need to eat. It's later in the day, and so she's preparing food, and she starts to complain a little bit, because she's frustrated that she's the one doing all the work. Because where is her sister? Her sister was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings. Here she is. She's been on her feet. Mary, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. So let me put it to you like this. When the days are good and the sun is shining and everybody's alive and happy, it's dinner time. Where's Mary? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. But when the storm has arrived, the clouds are overhead, the sun isn't shining, and her brother is dead. Where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. Same place. You see the difference in the response to Jesus? Martha's on her feet. Mary's at his feet. Mary hears of Jesus coming. She runs to Jesus, weeping. That word in the Greek for weeping means to cry out loud, like literally wailing. She is sobbing as she arrives at Jesus. And she comes into the presence of Jesus 
sobbing, and she falls down at the feet of Jesus. She may repeat the same question, but she says it from a position of worship. Don't miss that. In the good times, she's at the feet of Jesus. In the challenging times, she's still sitting at the feet of Jesus. She may have the questions as everybody else, but they're not intellectual questions. They're questions of the heart. And when she says them, they're from a place where she's there to just worship Jesus. Now, some people read through this and they think that Mary and Martha are are questioning Jesus, questioning his love for them in this moment. When I read through this, and yes, I'm projecting my thoughts, I think Mary was just thankful that when she heard he finally showed up, she was thankful that Jesus is there and present with them in their time of need. That this wasn't some theological debate that was going on inside of her head. She didn't need lyrics to inspire her on a song. She didn't need anything else to take place in her life that might help that, that meter. She wasn't even questioning the meter. That wasn't even an issue in her mind. This was about, Jesus, you're here. Like, she knows who he is. There didn't have to be a question of the resurrection. No, I am the resurrection. Like, it doesn't even matter to Mary. Like, forget all that head knowledge. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here. And listen, it's that heart of worship that is what moved Jesus. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, wailing, sobbing, and the Jews who came with her weeping, wailing, and sobbing, says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Y'all say Jesus wept. If you can remember that, you'll say that you can remember scripture. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Mary runs and she falls at his feet, sobbing out loud. And then these professional mourners, they show up too. And they are sobbing out loud. And it says that Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled. That word right there for groaned is like this really weird word in the scriptures. Uh, It's an unusual word that means to snort with anger like a horse. So like, Mary falls at his feet. She is sobbing. She is crying at his feet, right? And then all these other weird people show up, and they're crying, and they're sobbing too. And you've got to ask the question. I don't know what your response would be, but I wouldn't be like, oh, that's nice. You know, they're getting paid to cry with her. I'd be like, this is weird. Like somebody's paying you to cry with her. Like this isn't even emotion from the heart. Like this is terrible. Like, where are the real family and friends in this moment? We don't need somebody to be paid to to weep with us and to cry with us. Like, I could see where Jesus might be just a little bit frustrated and troubled inside of his, his spirit. And yet it says that even though he was irritated in the moment, he wept. Jesus wept. Point number two, even though you don't even know what point number one was because I forgot to say it. Three statements that I wanted to draw out. Number two is that Jesus wept. Every time I preach a funeral, these are the verses that I preach. I often talk about Jesus and the fact that he wept. 
because so many people think that crying is is unhealthy or they have to apologize for crying or you know that that it's embarrassing like if the son of god who knows all things which means he also knew what he was about to do can weep so can we it's healthy it's okay now why did jesus weep I don't, I don't really know, but understand his weeping was different than Mary's weeping. Two different Greek words are used here. Jesus' act of weeping in the Greek was that he had tears coming down his cheek. It's the idea of silent crying. She's over here sobbing, and it moves him to tears. I just pictured Jesus with tears rolling down his cheeks. Mind you, he, he's frustrated. He's got a little bit of irritation and anger, and yet these tears just start rolling down his face. Why did Jesus weep? Why was he weeping? Nobody can know for sure. I've seen several opinions as I've studied this over the last two weeks. Some people believe that part of that was Jesus' frustration at people questioning his love. Jesus, if you had been here, Jesus, if you had been here, Jesus, you could have done this. If you did this, why couldn't you do that? Some people think that he was irritated at people's unbelief. Some people think that part of it was that he was mad at sin. He was mad at the devil, that he's mad at the sorrow that death brings. Some people think that it was that he had sorrow in his heart because this is a foreshadowing of his own death. And that this miracle taking place, what he's about to do, will be the final nail in his own coffin. Most commonly, people believe that Jesus wept simply because he cared. Because he loved. I think it's important for us to see this aspect because God wants us to know he's not an impersonable God. Isaiah 53.3 says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, speaking of the Messiah. Like, that's how it words who he is. He is a man of sorrows, and he is acquainted with grief. Romans 12.15, the Apostle Paul would write as inspiration for us Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice and have the ability to weep with those who weep. It's something that's very important in people's lives, to have those people around them, to support them in their time of loss. Why did Jesus weep? I believe that potentially it was a combination of many of these things. Because if you think about it, it's true that frustration and tears will often flow from the same source, from a place of love. You can be both mad and have sorrow in your life at the same time. Now, this, this sounds stupid, and don't judge me, but probably the most recent instance of this, my wife and I, we watched this documentary, and it was called American Horror. And so, I don't know if you guys have seen this on Netflix or seen it advertised. Uh, I recommend watching it if you want to be angry and cry. But it's the story of a woman who was kidnapped and she was taken away. She thought she was going to die. 
Uh, she gets released by her kidnapper, really strange story. All of our national media says that it was a hoax and it was phony and it was fake and nobody believed her. She was raped and all this stuff. And uh, only to find out that it was a lack of the police doing their job because they didn't believe her either. And at the end of the story, you're just like so crushed over the injustice that has taken place that you can't trust people that you should be able to trust. And, and yet you see the, the, uh, the sorrow inside of her over what happened to her, not just the incident itself and the hurt and the shame that it caused, but then the mocking of, of what she said took place making fun of her and, and knocking her. And, and when that ended, my wife and I, we, I just, we looked over at each other and, and she's crying and I'm crying and I'm just, I'm just pissed off at why this took place in our country. And it's the same feeling if I could go back to when I was in Israel and I walked through the Holocaust Museum. Man, I wept, and it still brings up emotions inside of me. Walking through that museum and seeing what took place to the Jews in World War II. Seeing their clothes laying out in front of you. Watching videos of what took place. And when you walk through that, if you don't have tears in your eyes, man, you've got to be heartless. And when you get done with it, you're just ticked. Like, how in the world could this have happened? To so many people, there's a frustration, an irritation, there's an anger inside of you at the way things take place in humanity, and yet there's tears that flow from you because you have a love inside of you for people. And that's where Jesus is in the story right now. Like, he's upset. Don't think that he doesn't know what's going to take place next. He said, let's go, I'm glad. He knows what's about to happen, but because he has Mary at his feet, worshiping him, sobbing out to him, thankful that he's there, he can, he can relate to the emotion that she's going through. And it's that act that moves him. Verse 37, some of the other people, they're like, some of them said, could not this man have opened the eyes of the blind also kept him, that man from dying? Like, here's the third time that Jesus is questioned. This time it's the crowd of Jews. But listen, here's what I don't want you to think. This isn't about people who don't believe. They believed enough that they believed that Jesus healed the blind man. And if you remember that story when you went through it, it wasn't just some average healing. More than likely, that was a man that was born without eyes. That was an act of creation that took place. It was miraculous. It blew people away. Not even the Pharisees could deny it eventually. They had to just accept, but it made them hate Jesus even more. These people knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. However, their statement of belief was definitely lacking in substance and sustenance. It was not going to nourish them at all. It's a mixed bag. But Jesus is in a mixed bag himself because he's moved from agitation to tears to agitation to tears. There's a frustration going on. And it says that Jesus, again, groaning in himself, like that feeling comes back. I'm just frustrated. He comes to the tomb real quick. What does the word tomb or grave mean in the original language? Remembrance. 
that should be something that sticks in our mind. What is the purpose of putting somebody's body in that grave? To remember. Of putting them in the tomb. To remember. To stir up your memories, to help you remember who that person was and and what they did and maybe the times that you spent with them. The idea is it's a place to remember, a place of remembrance. And so they put him, he says, he, they came to the tomb, it's a place of remembrance. They could all just remember what just happened. It was a cave and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, and said, who, who, the sister of him who was dead, says to Jesus, Lord, by this time there is a stench. He's been dead for how many days? Four days. Almost uh, amongst everything that's taken place so far in this situation, the words that have been spoken, the questions, the hurt, the sorrow, and the grief, Jesus says, listen, I understand all of this. I'm acquainted with these things. Take me to the place of remembrance. Take me to the place of what has died. Take me to the place of what is hurting you right now. And when he gets there, he stands at the entrance and he asks them to open the door. And Martha, in all of her faith, she's like, "Ah, I don't know if that's a good idea. Do you really know what you're asking right now, Jesus? You do know, like he's been decomposing now for four days. Like it's past time. Why do you want to remove the stone? Like, do you not understand? In their King James in the original language, it doesn't just say that there's an odor by now. It says he stinketh. Like, he stinks. His body is decomposed. Why would you want to do this? But listen, is this not the story of our life at times? We're going through something that is challenging our faith. Something happens that creates this dead memory inside of us, that whether it's a dead job or it's a dead dream that we once had or it's somebody that literally has passed away and it's challenging how we believe and it's causing us to have unbelief and yet we can still respond out of belief. We respond out of a lack of understanding, but whenever we get in that place, emotions are present. Sometimes anger and sometimes tears. And there are questions of why and where is Jesus or where was Jesus. And yet Jesus is present. And he literally wants to take us to that dead memory in our soul. He wants us to take him to where that hurt was, that sorrow was, to where all of this unbelief originates that's still inside of you. And he stands at the door and he knocks but he isn't going to force his way in. He needs you to be willing to open yourself up. And yet, how often are we not sure if that's a good idea? Because what's on the other side stinks. And that little bit of unbelief doesn't want to deal with this again. It doesn't doesn't want to deal with being disappointed again. It doesn't want to have to face the potential source of the hurt 
and of what's causing this response in the first place. And yet Jesus is so good that he stands there waiting. And he lovingly persists. He says in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, remember? Remember that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. What's he's done? He's brought her to the place of remembrance. And all she can remember is how bad things are. And Jesus is like, no, I want you to remember what I said. I want you to remember who I am. And he reminds her of their conversation. He reminds her of his word. He reminds her of his promise. And so they take away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. And I love this part. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. I I love how he says this. He's like, God, I'm thankful that you hear me. I'm thankful that you always hear what I have to say. And you know what? I know that I don't have to speak these words right now, but the reason why I'm speaking these words right now is for everybody else that's around me. Because I want to help battle their unbelief. I want to help them overcome their lack of understanding. And so he prays this prayer, not for himself, not because he had to. He's praying a prayer for others. Now, I don't want to get caught up in this because I'm going too long as it is. But I want us to understand, like I've heard people knocked for the way that people pray. And sometimes people will say, you know, they're not praying to God right now. They're just praying because of how it looks or how it sounds or they're praying for other people. And that might be true sometimes because we don't know the heart of an individual. But the truth is there's a reason why we are called to pray out loud. Sometimes our own prayers might be the one thing that inspires our faith, that strengthens our faith. Like you can sit all day long and you can pray in your head and yes, God hears you. But man, to sometimes just stand up, rise up, and pray out loud, your own ears need to hear what you're saying sometimes. And when you got people around you and somebody says, let's get together and pray, have you ever just like got, like, would you guys pray for me? Sure. And we get around the person and we either lay hands on them or we get in a circle. I've seen all of this and experienced all of this. and, And nobody prays out loud. Everybody's praying but nobody's praying out loud. And they're like, okay, love you, see you later. Like, no expectation. Like, there wasn't really a moving of the meter that took place. Like, and, and that's not what we're, here, what we're here for, but we know that there is a reason why you speak God's word out loud, why you talk to him out loud. It might be that their ears needed to hear your words of faith as you prayed. And so Jesus is like, this isn't for me. This is for them. And so he says these words. And here's what I want us to to realize here. Why is Jesus even here to begin with? Can anybody answer that question? Jesus didn't need to say the words. Jesus didn't need to have them move the stone for him. 
Jesus didn't need them to show him the way to the grave. Jesus didn't even need to have them ask him to come. And Jesus didn't need, need to leave from where he started when he was with his disciples in a whole other town two days away. He could have healed Lazarus just like he did with the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He didn't even pray a prayer like, your son's good. Right? He didn't pray for the nobleman's faith. He didn't pray out loud. He's just like, no, he's fine, go. And what? He was healed. Just like that. Jesus didn't have to do any of this, but he does choose. He chooses to show up. He chooses to ask for their involvement in the situation. And he chooses to say the words on their behalf. Lazarus, come forth. Why? Man, these signs have, have essentially been building up throughout this whole book so far to this seventh and final sign. Saving the best for last. John really, right here, wants his readers to see what Jesus wanted everybody to see and to know who he really is, that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. Life. He's wanting them in his day to know right then and there that they would have life, that they could live through what it is that's about to come concerning Jesus, his death, and his own resurrection. That you have the ability to have life and to live through the questions, the unknowns, the mysteries of life, the trials and the tribulations, the successes, the sufferings, and the sorrows. That he wants you to understand that you can have life in the joy, that you can have life in the heartbreaks, that you can experience new New life, abundant life, and eternal life. Verse 44, and as he said these things, he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them all around, loose him and let him go. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he writes in, in a sermon that he wrote on this that it's a good thing that Jesus said Lazarus' name. Otherwise, every dead body within the sound of his voice would have come up out of the grave. Because he is the resurrection and the life. But listen, he didn't unwrap Lazarus' grave clothes himself. My final statement, and I'm going to close here. Jesus said for them to loose him and let him go. Like Jesus, Jesus could have healed Lazarus. He could have, when he healed him, caused the grave clothes to fall off of him, be left in a bundle, and produced a coat of many colors for Lazarus to walk out in. But he didn't. Lazarus had new life, but he was still bound. Lazarus had new life, but he was still wearing old clothes. Lazarus had new life, but there was still probably a little bit of stink around him. Jesus told those around Lazarus, listen, those who were connected to Lazarus, those whose belief was literally just strengthened 
through the new life that was given to somebody else, he told them to loose him. Most of us here at some point in our lives, we started this whole journey, because everybody does, spiritually dead. But then we came to a place in our life where we chose to believe even now that Jesus is personal, that Jesus cares, that he is the Christ. And then Christ comes to meet us where we are. And through the authority of his word, we come alive. And when we come alive, it's time to take the grave clothes off. But you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that they struggle with removing their grave clothes. They continue wearing what they did. They continue wearing what somebody else did to them. They're still wearing an old identity. They're still wearing guilt, shame, and condemnation. And Jesus doesn't tell Lazarus, take off your own grave clothes. Two people are excluded here. Jesus didn't remove his clothes. And the one who was given new life didn't remove his clothes. But he tells them to remove his clothes. To those around him, I want you to go and help. And this is where the family of God is supposed to kick in. To help unravel the lies of the world that this person has been surrounded by. You are loved. God doesn't hate you. You're forgiven. He doesn't condemn you. You're not who you were. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not an enemy of God. You love Jesus, and Jesus loves you. You're a child of God. You don't have to live in fear. You can live in love. And now, as those things are coming off and new clothes are being put on, he says, let him go. There's one thing that in the responsibility, if we will catch this as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ of people who come to new life, is that when it comes to moving the meter of faith in our lives, can you imagine if they had that believe in, belief in Jesus to accept him into their life, I'm now alive, how much more it would move the meter to know that there's a family of people that are now around me that care, that will help me take off these clothes, that aren't afraid to tell me when I stink, that can say, you know what, that's not a good attitude to have, but put on this attitude. That's a not a good place for you to be right now, but here's a better place for you to be. To know like now, now I have faith in Jesus, but I have these people around me that are going to help me get there. And for those who are already there and they're helping the person that has new life, how much more does it move your faith meter to be reminded that when something looks dead, Jesus is the God of the impossible, 
and can raise that person to life. And even though they may still have a little stench on them and their life isn't perfect, like, man, I could see the miracle in that person's life. I can see the miracle in her life. And talk about moving the meter of faith in our lives. It's the battle of unbelief. And all of these aspects to have that faith of even now, to know that even Jesus weeps because he cares for you right where you are. And then finally, that last aspect, Jesus wants to see his family working together to move your faith to be unbreakable, to be able to persevere no matter what we see. Forget about what happened yesterday, but what can happen with Jesus even now?